Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. You talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, I'm Kylie Orr, author of Someone Else's Child, and I'm here with Mercedes Mercia, author of White Noise, and together we're thrilled to be taking over Danny V's Words and Nerds podcast. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, Kylie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I have so many questions for you about your fabulous debut, so I'm just going to jump right in if that's okay. Sure. First, can you just give us a little quick elevator pitch of your book so the listeners know what it's about? Sure. So White Noise follows Laura Fleming, who's a psychologist at a fictional prison called Westmead in New South Wales. And she takes over a inmate called Justin Jones from a colleague who goes on maternity leave a little bit early. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And she starts to real starts to get this feeling that something's just not quite right with Justin, but he's charismatic, he's you know, he's good looking, he's sort of got everything, he's very manipulative and he's got everyone else in the prison fooled into thinking that he's this this model inmate. Um, and so she starts to just have these little, little questions and little things that she's not 100% sure about with him. Um, and as she starts to investigate him, these attacks start happening, these just these little threatening sort of attacks that start building and building and building. And so she has to fight these off while trying to work out what's happening with Justin. Absolutely. Actually, I'm really intrigued by your background in corrections. I know nothing about the inside of a prison, so this book was fascinating to me, obviously fictionalised, but based on your experience. So can you tell us a bit more about the roles you've had? Is it eight years that you've worked in corrections? Yes, I've been in corrections for eight years. I'm more on the corporate side of things. So I go into the prisons every now and again, um, but not, I don't work in a prison every day. So I have a lot of experience and a lot of stories and, you know, heard a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things over my years. I can imagine. Yeah, wow. I mean, I wouldn't even know how to get into a prison I mean, not, not. It's quite a process. Not as a convicted felon, <laughs> I mean, as a visitor. But yeah, yeah, I, it, yeah, reading the book, that all those little details are really interesting to me. Um, I really loved the complexities of your protagonist, Laura, particularly her history of addiction, because she was once a paramedic. She obviously changes jobs and becomes a psychologist. But why did you give her the job as a paramedic? I think I read in your acknowledgements, is your brother a paramedic? Yes, yeah, my brother okay. is a paramedic and has been a paramedic for probably about 10 years now. Um, and I've just heard some of the incredible stories, you know, across his career from, 
you know, the lovely things like delivering babies and saving lives to just yeah. the most horrific, horrific stories of, you know, things that he's had to see and deal with and, um, yeah, and it's, I just think paramedics are just some of the most heroic, incredible people that, you know, there are. So I really wanted to highlight that and just show a little bit of the, you know, the, the difficulty of the job, but also do a bit of a, a bit of a shout out to, to paramedics and the incredible job that they do. Yeah, they are amazing. And it, it's really intriguing how the jobs we give to our characters sort of inform how they behave and show a lot of characteristics about who they are. Yes. Um, so Laura is punished, I won't give it away, incredibly harshly in my opinion for a mistake she made while her daughter was in her care. And, you know, I do have a little bit of an issue with the patriarchy. So I'm wondering if you think women are judged more severely for their errors when it comes to children would a father be made the same example of the way Laura was? Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I did want to highlight that as well. I think that, I mean, I'm not a parent myself, but from what I've seen, I think this, you know, the bar for, for men is set a lot lower <laughs> in parenting than, than it is for women, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I did see a, a funny meme the other day. Well, it wasn't funny. It was, you know, sadly true. And it had you know, a dad coming through the front door holding takeout and the caption was fun dad and then a mum oh. coming through the door holding takeout and the caption was lazy mum. Yeah, wow. And I think it just does sort of show that disparity between, you know, between men and women when when parenting. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I don't think a father would be would be punished as severely and as, as Laura was and, yeah, I, I did want to sort of, you know, highlight and, and the guilt that, you know, the, the enduring guilt that she felt for that for that one mistake which, you know, will live with will live with her forever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a mum of four, so when I was reading a lot of those parts, it was just breaking me to think, wow, you know, she's she's really been punished for that. Mm. Um so there are a lot of themes in your book that are really strong, addiction, violent crime, domestic and family abuse, coercive control, and to me they're tackled so expertly in the novel, Thank which you. makes me wonder what kind of research did you have to do to treat the subject matter with not only respect but accuracy? I did have to do a lot of research and thankfully I guess the you know, the position that I'm in in my workplace, I have access to a lot of psychologists and yep. social workers who deal with a lot of perpetrators of domestic violence, coercive control, um, you know, dealing with a lot of clients with addiction backgrounds. Um, so I was lucky enough to, to sit down and, and be able to have a chat and really do some research, ask some questions, um, pick their brains about, you know, all that all that, you know, all those issues so I could sort of get a really deep um, understanding and make sure it was accurate as well. So I wanted to, you know, run everything past um, a psychologist friend that I've got at work, some yep. social workers, um, just to make sure that, like you said, it wasn't only accurate but it was handled, you know, sensitively and respectfully and correctly. Yeah, absolutely. But they're quite intricate. They're, they're very intricate issues and 
you know, coming from the outside, it's, I just wanted to make sure that I, that I did it justice. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's something that you want to make a statement about, but you don't want it to be triggering, I guess, for readers. Um, Another strong theme is male violence in particular. And I think as women, we just live, uh, we're sort of socialised with the uh, feeling that you always need to be aware of your surroundings and your you're conscious of um, anyone who's around you, even if it's daytime, not that we live in a state of paranoia, but I think it's just ingrained in women. In fact, I was talking to a friend this morning and she told me her son was doing volleyball training and she didn't want to sit in the car. She wanted to go for a walk. And my first question was, but was it dark? Mm. And she said, yes. So what I did was share my location to my family. And when she got home, her son's like, why did you do that? But it's just... It's just something we're very aware of. So in this story, Laura lives alone um, and every time she was going back to her apartment, I had this little panic inside like, oh, God, is she going to be okay? It really captured the fear that so many women live with. And I wondered, was that a deliberate choice to have her live alone and not have a roommate? It was. I wanted to, I really wanted to highlight and and make make the fact that she didn't feel safe anywhere and home's meant to be this safe space, this, you know, this cocoon that you can come back to, you can shut out the world, let, you, let, you know, let everything down, completely be yourself and as a woman living alone... She just can't. You know, she yeah. just can't and there was no space in her life where she could feel completely safe like at work she didn't feel completely safe out and about she didn't feel completely safe at home she didn't feel completely safe and so I just wanted to to highlight that and have that that tension that there was really nowhere that that she could relax and you know and and be protected and and be safe yeah and I was just thinking it actually played really well into the suspense of the story because it, it might seem like a minor theme or a minor um plot point but it does add that layer when you're reading it that okay she's left work now and that happened at work but now she gets home and now there's this um so yeah I think that kept me on the edge of my seat as well um despite her difficulties and traumas she still really believes in redemption which I found wow amazing do you think this is idealistic or do you believe people can change I think it's a little bit of both. I sort of wanted to show her as an idealist because she's been through so much and I I wanted to show that, you know, you can go through all of that trauma and all of, you know, the awful things that can happen at the hands of other people but you can still have hope for the future and you can still have belief in redemption and second chances and... You know, you can, you, can, you can still believe that people can change and that's that's vitally important for a job because if she didn't believe that, then she wouldn't be in there trying to, you know, trying to change offenders, you know, paths, trying to get them off a life of crime, trying to, you know, have them exit prison as a better person and a different person than when they came in. Yeah, and, and it was nice that she wasn't kind of bitter and cynical. I'm sure many in the corrections world get very burnt out absolutely they see 
the same people coming and going with no change of behavior so I really liked that she had that about her yeah exactly and you know recidivism is is a is a big issue it's you know sort of most jurisdictions around the country it sits at 40 percent wow so you know 40 percent of inmates in prison have, have been there before um and so it is a it is an enduring issue and it is an issue that will continue but you know there is there is this small amount that that can change and that can leave prison and never come back and yeah, it's wow. those stories that those people that you know keep the psychologists and the social workers and the officers you know doing what they do and and having hope and coming to work and enjoying it and and that's you know, what no. I was going to say for the reader as well. In the story, it offers the reader some hope as well. Mm, mm. And it's, it's, it's such important work because, you know, the majority of people that go into prison are going to come back out at some point and they're going to be living, you know, in a suburb near you. They're going to be going to your supermarket. They're going to be, you know, have kids yeah. at the same school as you. And, you know, you want these people to come out of prison different and better than when yes. they went in and it's the job of these psychologists these social workers you know these officers day in day out to try and do that and it's tough work it's you know it's really oh, yeah. really challenging but you know it can be so rewarding and and yeah. so meaningful as well well very worthwhile for the society <laughs> you know as a whole to have people reform and change because some of their backgrounds uh, almost too disturbing for us to read or think about because we didn't have, you know, those kind of upbringings. Exactly. Um, which is not an excuse for behaviour, but it certainly in, in, informs or makes us understand perhaps why people behave the way they do. Absolutely. And it's these cycles and these, you know, these cycles of trauma and violence and growing up in this world and, you know, your, your father went to prison, you know, your mother went to prison. So it's just, you know, everyone you know went to prison, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that it, it's hard because, you know, you're not, these people aren't given the same footing, the same, the same start in life as, you know, as other people. So it's, right. I guess it's also, it's a big sort of social justice issue as well and trying to, you know, give these people a better, a better path and role modelling you know what what it is to be a to be a good person and to live a different life mm, absolutely so my last question is what do you think aspiring writers might like to know about the process of getting published Ooh, maybe how long i guess maybe sort of how long the process is from signing that deal to seeing your book on the shelf and you know, and how much work goes into it across across that time. Um, I'm just trying to think. It's probably almost almost a year, I think, the, the full process um, from, you know, signing that deal to seeing, seeing my book on the shelf. So, and, you know, throughout that process there was, you know, countless edits, um, you know, rewrites, um, you know, just completely throwing stuff out, changing characters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, cover design. Cover design, yes. um, and you know the promotional side of it as well is 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 a big aspect as well. Yeah. Um, so I think it mine is, was nearly two years. I signed wow. in October twenty twenty. 
Yes. And my book just came out 1st of June 2022. Yes. Wow. So that's, yeah, yeah, that is a long process. Yeah, so it can be a long process, but, you know, the, the moment that you see your book on the shelf, it's just, you know, it's, yeah. I can't even describe it. For, for me, it was seeing it, at the air, seeing it at the airport was always my... Yes. What is it about yeah. airports? Every time someone sends me a photo of my book at an airport, I am just overwhelmed with joy i mean i've seen it in bookshops but i don't know there's something about the airport that's like yes (laughs) i've made it now i have a one star review and i've made it at the airport i feel like i'm a true author now (laughs) you know ebbs and flows you've got to have that you know you've got to have that one star review on goodreads and then you know in the in the airport (laughs) just tick the boxes exactly well that's been awesome um is my turn to throw over to you now Absolutely. I got lots and lots of questions for you. I absolutely loved someone else's child. There's so much stuff I would love to go into. Unfortunately, I'll have to hold back a little bit because a lot of it is spoiler territory. But before I dive into my questions, elevator pitch. So it's the story of Ran, who's a respite coordinator in a regional town, a fictional town in Australia. She would do anything, anyone, but mostly for her best friend, Anna. The news that Anna's daughter Charlotte has terminal brain cancer sends them on a desperate hunt for a cure and their only hope lies in an expensive European drug trial. So they set about raising the $100,000 registration fee, but then the family don't spend the money where they promised. So going back to the beginning, we're both graduates of the Fiona McIntosh Masterclass. Now you actually were awarded the inaugural Dimix and Fiona McIntosh Masterclass Scholarship. Yes. How did this How did this come about? So Fiona probably won't like me saying this, but I'd never heard of it and I'd never heard of her class. Ooh. And my <laughs> sister-in-law, who is a GP, she forwarded an email she got from Dimix that was advertising this um, Masterclass and the scholarship. So I polished the first chapter, sweated over the synopsis and sent it off and did not think another thing of it because I'd entered lots of things in the past and never heard anything. And then I had the PR manager from Dimix call me. I had just returned from visiting my dad in hospital who was sick with cancer and she told me I won and I I just sobbed like some kind of unhinged woman because it's these things, isn't it, when you're writing that just give you that little, like, I don't know, life support to say, yes, okay, keep on this path. It's 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 getting there. It's slow. Yeah. It's full of potholes, but it's getting there. Yeah. And so the course, obviously, you've done it. It was inspiring, motivational. Fiona is incredibly magnetic. She's a great presenter. Um, and I met some fabulous people who I'm still friends with and, in fact, some of them flew down from interstate to Melbourne wow. for my book launch. That's amazing. Yeah, so after the masterclass I tried to sit down and finish the manuscript but my dad was very sick and, unfortunately, he passed away from cancer about three weeks after I got back from the course oh, and then I just could not, like I had nothing left no emotional bandwidth and you know you have to tap into your emotions to tell stories so I just had to sit away from it for a while and then I gave myself deadlines by entering competitions and that helped me write when I didn't feel like it so I basically just tried to write the manuscript to the end and then I tried to get it published and that took a long 
long time. <laughs> so, so what was the story there? So you were entering competitions, you were trying to get published. What was the, what was the moment when things started happening for you? So I entered the Ritual Prize, which is run by Hachette, and I'd entered it the year before and didn't hear anything. And then I entered it again with this manuscript. And I didn't even actually know that they'd released the list. And I, one of the masterclass people rang me and left a message, like, screaming to say my name was on it. And so I had to pull over on the side of the road and have a little cry. And then, yeah, so I got long-listed on the Ritual Prize and but got no further. But what that did was... Um, get my name out there and so then I was in discussions with Danielle Binks an agent and she wanted to read the whole manuscript and she did and they signed me so it was I, I mean that is my number one tip for writers aside from write the whole thing to the end is enter competitions because at least somebody reads it in a slush pile you don't even know if it's getting read and you may never get long-listed or short-listed but you just don't know who's going to read it and so exactly. it might be the key to opening one of the doors and the wonderful thing about you know competitions as well as sometimes you get given feedback which is just absolutely invaluable getting feedback from you know a publisher or an editor it's just even if you don't get a, a contract out of it just you know finding out where you're going wrong or where you're going right is, is so important. Absolutely. All right. So, Ren, your main character. I loved her. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was just absolutely hilarious. She had these these catchphrases and these sayings that I could just picture coming out of, you know, the mouths of people that I I know. I yeah. thought it was an incredibly well-drawn well character. Thank you. Um, was was it a deliberate choice to make her a very sort of, you know, down-to-earth, I guess sort of more like country character? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted a bleeding heart, salt-of-the-earth type of character, not, not in a cliched, stereotypical way, but I needed someone who saw the good in everyone because I also wanted that to be Ren's flaw. Yes. And in a way it was her downfall. Um, so, yeah, it was a very deliberate um, decision, but it was also an amalgamation of lots of people I know. So I don't live in a country town, but I do have family who are from regional Victoria and I have friends who, you know, live where I live in the Yarra Valley but have come from country towns and they say the weirdest sayings that I've never heard and then they look at me like I'm the weirdo because I've never heard them say it. Um, so I did incorporate... A few of those in I would have liked to have got a lot more but some of them just didn't quite fit with the context of the chapter. But, yes, Ren was a deliberate down-to-earth bleeding heart. Yeah, yeah. And setting it in the small town of Gibbs Creek, I really loved that because it had a it had sort of like a claustrophobic feel, you know, everyone knows everyone, everyone's in each other's business you know, yep. you're just trying to walk down the street and you have these people coming up to you and, and asking questions and you just you just can't escape. Was was that the part of the reason you decided to set it in a small town rather than a, you know, a major city? Yeah, for sure. There's definitely the claustrophobia, but the flip side of that is that there's a really strong sense of community in small towns. Yes. And that's really how Anna is able to succeed in raising money for the drug trial. So it was an important setting for that reason. And also I think you, I mean, 
you can be friendly with your neighbours and be part of a community wherever you live. It could be part of a sports club or whatever. But I think when you develop this sense of community, you also develop a sense of loyalty and accountability to those people. And so that worked best for me by having Ren as a native, really, of the small town and Anna as an outsider because they often have that sort of outsider, I don't know, issues yeah. even when there's not. Like or, I have cousins who live in um, regional Victoria and I remember as a kid they used to call us the Melbourne cousins and they thought that we were like cooler and, yeah, you know, we weren't. We were dorks. <laughs> yeah. We lived one hour outside of the city as well. So it wasn't, I mean, we didn't live in a regional town, but it, it's sort of this, I don't know, them versus us mentality. Not now. They are the much cooler, much trendier, whatever. <laughs> we're still the dorks who live an hour outside of the city, but, yeah. And you can you can have lived, you know, in this, in this town for 10, 20 years, but you're, you're not seen, you're still not seen as a true local because you weren't born there. Very interesting. I've got lots of family in regional SA as well. And yeah, it's that right. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the story centres around eight-year-old Lottie who has terminal cancer. How yeah. much research did you have to do to make sure the, you know, the medical side of things was, was correct? I had to do a lot. But yeah. like you, I'm very lucky because I have relatives who are doctors, paramedics and nurses <laughs> And so I sent off many, many emails to say, what would happen if this and what are the side effects of this and what would you normally, you know, put a child on if they had this particular symptom? And my sister-in-law, Kath, who's a GP, read the entire manuscript so she could pick me up on any medical mistakes. So if there are any medical issues in that book, I blame Kath. It's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> But I did some, I went down some pretty dark rabbit holes when I was doing some research. Like, yeah. And also my brain is not, my brain is not configured for um, medical terminology. I do start to tune out a little bit when I start to read all those really long Latin names. I'm like, all right, just tell us what it is. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm the same. Um, I can imagine you know that as a parent and having a having a child diagnosed with terminal cancer would just be you know oh. absolute you know worst nightmare like yeah yeah how did you how did you approach writing about this you know this incredibly sensitive topic did you have to take any special considerations on board yeah for sure i mean it's horrific to imagine I don't even know if you need to be a parent to think that, but it is, um, I know from my own experience that even when my kids are sick or struggling even mentally, it it breaks you as a parent because you would swap, just put yourself in their place every time if it meant they could be well. I was worried about writing such a difficult topic because I didn't want readers to be turned off to think, oh, that's too sad. I don't want to read about a kid with cancer. But in the end, I knew the story was bigger than the cancer. It was about community and female friendships. It's really a commentary on motherhood and society's judgment in a way. So I had to just know that that was the, the cancer was the linchpin, but there is a whole other story going on. Yeah, absolutely. And big themes in the book are female friendship, loyalty. Was it? 
was it a conscious choice to explore these themes or did it come naturally when when the story was unfolding it probably wasn't originally conscious but it is something that I'm really intrigued by so it, it developed into a bigger theme perhaps than I had originally considered I would write about I really think women do friendships differently we we layer complexity into friendships we invest significant time and effort um, I'm not saying that men don't do that but I think men are better I don't know why this is probably a whole nother podcast they just don't take as many things on board like you know a, a woman's a friend's emotional state or you know like I, I am very invested in my friendships I adore my friends they are an extension of my family but for some reason if I upset them it, it feels worse to me I, I feel like maybe it has an insecurity about it a friendship rather than um family relationships where you know that pretty much they always have to just put up with you yep. um so I, I just liked the layers and i think integral to most women i mean i would hope most people but it's particularly for women is that we like to build loyal and lasting relationships and it's also key to the plot because ren's loyalty to anna blinds her and mm. I, I have seen that in many friendships so absolutely yeah. absolutely and the character of Anna, she's she's deeply complex, deeply layered. You know, I can't go into any spoilers, but you know, she's had some things in her in her past that you know have led her to be be the way she is. How did you how did you go about writing a character like that? Did she you know was she fully formed in your head before you started writing, or did you you know write the first draft and then have to go back and and add layers to her in subsequent edits? Yeah, look, she didn't come fully formed. I always knew she'd have a difficult backstory and I wrote a few drafts before I got into the nitty gritty of that in my head. Not much of it is given away in the story, but it informs her behavior and her decision-making. I think probably what happened is I originally wrote this book from three points of view. So it was Anna, Charlotte and Wren. And when the story wasn't working like I'd hoped, an editor gave me feedback that I'd mastered Ren's voice, but the other two needed work. So I either needed to really put the energy into that or I needed to rewrite. So I chose to rewrite. And what it did is taught me it's actually Ren's story. It's not Anna's story. And I learned a lot about Anna in that original um, draft because I had to sort of do even though I hadn't mastered her voice at that time I knew more about her character by the end so it, it felt like torture rewriting but now mm. I, I can reflect and say it was really worthwhile because it meant I understood Anna and her motivations better absolutely absolutely all right well final question from me so what part of the publication journey has surprised you the most so far? Uh, similar to yours, the timing. Um, I mean, I was quite happy not to be rushed through the process, but I also expected I'd be under much tighter deadlines, which I probably shouldn't say because now they'll be like, <laughs> right, get this second book sorted. Um, I am, I, this is bad that I'm surprised by this, but I'm surprised that people are nice. I just, I just feel like publishing gets this really bad rap that they're all a-holes and they're 
I don't know, they're just very demanding and they're not understanding of you and your life and what's going on outside of your writing. And I have not found that at all. And the the wider writing community in Australia is so supportive and encouraging. Absolutely. Um, I was so surprised by that. I, you know, there's no... There's no jealousy, you know, you know, this is my patch. I'm going to, you yeah. know, hold on to this and not let you try and, and break in. Everyone is so generous and so yeah. supportive. I mean, so far we're, we're very fresh and new. True. The other thing I'm surprised about is that clearly I don't have a movie deal. Like <laughs> I have messaged, I messaged Nicole Kidman on Instagram <laughs> and she has not liked me yet. Um, everyone keeps telling me to contact Reese, but I read that she doesn't take unsolicited books, so I don't want to upset her. No, I think um, I think Nicole's your, your your safe bet. I think that. Well, was a- I did I did frame it in that really her and I are kind of the same person. Like we're both Australian, we both have four kids, we, we're both in like the creative arts. We Absolutely. both support women, lead women. We like female-led stories. Yeah. Hello. Similarities are endless. <laughs> I, I don't I just, it's been six weeks since that book's out. What the hell are they waiting for? And same for you. Like, I'm what, still waiting for Netflix. Where is it? Call me. Yeah. Where, where's my, where's my anyway. Netflix series? You know, you know where to find us. <laughs> yeah, Netflix exactly. and Hollywood. <laughs> just your people speak to our people, hey? Exactly. And what part have you enjoyed the most so far? Uh, Oh, God, I can't narrow that down. I mean, it's so nice to see the books on the shelves. And I have to, I I am quite an impatient personality. I'm very sorry to everyone who deals with me because I do have these kind of outrageous expectations that the book will be an instant bestseller. And when I walk into a shop and it's not, it doesn't have a whole table display, then I get a little bit upset and just find two spines down low. I'm like, what? What's going on here? What like why is that at the bottom? Shouldn't it be in the window? Yes. Um, Pull it out. Rude, impatient. No, I'm not rude. <laughs> I just um, would like it to be. Also, I'm not young. I'm 47. I came to this late. I've That's been working still, on yeah. it a long time. I, I want to see it do really well and I want to make writing my career. So yeah. I, I'm trying to walk the balance of that. So yeah. I have to stop and remind myself Remember the day when you just wished you could get a publishing contract? Remember the day when you just wished that you could see your book on the shelf? And I have done both of those things and I need to remind myself. But probably the moment that made me almost cry was on the day of my book launch. I launched at the beautiful readings, I think, in um, Adelaide. They've just done up the one you were at. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So I launched at the Emporium in Melbourne, which has also been renovated and it is magnificent and I arrived with my family in tow and um, was just dumping some bags and stuff early and they had this big massive stack of my books on the bench and just seeing it in like that wow but there was a lady buying the book when I turned up and that was the very first in-store purchase and oh my god did I accost that woman and say I'm the author. Do you want me to sign it? <laughs> so I was you were so excited. You were I didn't there know to her. witness. That's amazing. Yes, to I did. I, very she first. was no like family member that I'd guilted and bribed into coming. She was some perfect stranger, and the lovely sales person at readings had said to them, "Oh, this book's launching tonight." Prior to me arriving at the shop. Um, so yes. Anyway, how about you? As we That's- wrap it up. 
I think pretty much the same thing, just walking into a bookshop and not, I mean, I always, you know, it's always in the back of my head, but there's just sometimes where you just see it somewhere and someone's gone to all this effort, they've put your posters up, you know, your book's sitting sort of at the front. And yeah. It's just cover out. Yes, I just, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's that's my book, that's for me. Like I still yeah. can't, you know, wrap my head around it. There's still that, you know, that imposter syndrome that I think we all, that we all deal with that flares up all the time. But aside from that, I think, the airport like I said before I don't know what it is about airports I don't know if it's the magic of going on a plane of knowing you're going on a holiday so airports are just this you know you know this amazing sort of space that I'm excited anyway when I get into an airport is Um, it because Nicole's going to walk through absolutely she's going to walk through it does she she go through the airport or does she have special she probably has her own hangar wouldn't she (laughs) her own like (laughs) (laughs) private Her and Keith. Are they still together? I think so. I'll let you know when she calls. (laughs) Please drop my name in when she rings you as well. I definitely will. Anyway, it's been so great chatting to you today. And I love, love, loved White Noise. So everybody needs to rush out and buy it. And a huge thanks to Danny V for letting us hitch a ride on your podcast. We are very thankful because I've seen that book stack that she has sitting behind her with everyone demanding just a piece of her. And so it was so nice that we got this opportunity. It was wonderful. And and thank you so much, Kylie. I had, had such a great time. And Someone Else's Child is just an incredible debut. And I'm, I'm so excited to, you know, read your ne- next book and great. see what you do next. Thank you so much, Mercedes. It was nice to meet you. Thanks, Kylie. Bye. Bye.